to have you here. Um, what a treat to be here. <laughs> Tessa has never been in this church before, yeah. so forgive her if she keeps gazing upwards. Yeah. It is, it is that, that, that effect. Love and Friendship, of course, was one of the titles of one of Jane Austen's childhood novels, yep. Never Finished. Yep. And arguably, I think it is, it is your abiding theme in all six of your novels, in different twists and turns, love and friendship. And what really struck me thinking about that was that immediately when you see love and friendship alongside sense and sensibility, you think, well, are these opposites? Hmm. And can they coexist? And again, that's another of your abiding themes. So the, the decay of friendship in the face of love, the way love can undermine, undermine a marriage, seemingly. Yes. And... And one can go on and on. One can go on and on. About these I know. Things. Well, clever you yeah. and clever me, because we both pick the bottomless subject, yes, which is how to be subject. happy, how to form relationships that last. And it's kind of the oldest subject and the most well-worn subject. And in a way, one has to find a new, a new way in, a new um, door into yeah. that old story, because you don't want to be just sounding like every writer, every novelist in Britain and maybe Europe has sounded for 200 years. But on the other hand, how lovely to be, to be revisiting that great terrain. But of course, how you have always refashioned it is by weighting your stories towards marriage. Well, not all of them, because mm. some of them are about, yeah. about, about adolescence. But in this case, it's almost as if you've gone back, because your first novel, Accidents in the Home, yeah. that was your first, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. That was very much about uh, a heroine who puts a jeopardy, what appears to be a very happy marriage, a marriage yes. with three children, for the sake of an erotic adventure, disastrously. Yeah. And yes. the permutations of that. And here, in your Same. latest, your sixth novel, Late in the Day, you are revisiting marriage, but this is very much long marriage. So these are two... Yes. We start with two long marriages. Yes. And then they are completely skewed when the husband in one of the marriages dies and suddenly the friendships and the marriages are thrown off kilter. Yes, because I suppose in that great novel and story tradition that we both write in, courtship used to be the, the great story falling in love, finding your way to the, the other and all the obstacles that lay in the way. And it is a great story, and I'm, I'm sure there are still, will still be good novels written about that. But in a way, it's quite modern that the, the culmination where the two come together is not the end of the book any longer. I mean, honestly, in Victorian times, you were quite lucky if you lasted another 10 exactly. years after that. You were lucky made it through childbirth, <laughs> yeah. let alone have three children. And, this know. is really true. And, and that was a statistic that I remember being astonished by kind of 20 years ago or longer when I read a, a historical book about marriage and I discovered that our marriages now, we feel we're all divorcing, uh, but actually marriages last on average longer than they ever have. And even second and third marriages. I mean, you've got the good news subject, if you don't mind me saying so, is gay marriage is the wonderfully not yet written at great length. It's a new thing. It's, it's new-ish. New-ish. Because actually, as soon as you take out the word gay, you are still left with the same yeah. problems of when romance turns to buying cat litter and emptying you are, the dishwasher. Of course. So. Yeah, you are. But I, I feel it's... I do literally feel it is a great new... It's like sort of putting a big extension well, not, yes. on the house it's of fiction. It's very handy. I think for yeah. all of us novelists, it's mm. like suddenly discovering an extra, extra yeah. room in the house or exactly several that. rooms. Exactly that. Totally. Yeah. Would, you, would you break, you know, break us 
in, those of us who haven't read the novel, by, by giving us an extract, from, maybe yeah. from near the beginning? I, I think I'll read the very beginning, because that's always easy with a novel. It doesn't matter if any of you haven't read it. There's nothing you need to know. And, yeah. They were listening to music when the telephone rang. It was a summer's evening, nine o'clock. They had finished supper, and Christine was listening with intensity, sitting with her feet tucked under her in the armchair. She recognised the music, although she didn't know what it was. Alex had, cons- sorry, Alex had chosen it. He hadn't consulted her, and now she stubbornly wouldn't ask. He took too much pleasure in knowing what she didn't know. He lay on the sofa in the bay window with a book open in his hand, not reading it. The book dropped across his chest. He was watching the sky outside. Their flat was on the first floor and the sitting room window looked out over a wide street lined with plane trees. A gang of parakeets zipped across from the park and the purple-brown darkness of the copper beach next door fumed against the turquoise sky, swallowing the last light. A blackbird, silhouetted with open beak on a branch, must be singing, but the recorded music overrode it. It was the landline ringing. Christine was dragged away from the music. She stood up and looked around her to see where they'd put the handset down when they last finished with it, probably somewhere here among the piles of books and papers, or in the kitchen with the washing up. Alex ignored the ringing or only showed he was aware of it by a little irritable tension in his face. All was liquidly expressive, foreign, because the eyes were so dark, outlined as if they were painted. This effect was more striking as he was growing older and brightness was leaching out of his hair, which used to be the colour of tarnished dark gold. It was more likely to be her mother on the phone than his, or it might be their daughter Isabel and Christine wanted to talk to her giving up on the handset, not bothering to fish in her bare feet for her espadrilles. She hurried up the stairs, taking them two at a time, she could still do it, to where the phone extension was in their bedroom in the attic. The music carried on without her in the room behind, Schubert or something. And as Christine dropped onto the side of the bed and answered the phone breathlessly, she was aware of the sweetness of a tumbling succession of descending notes. This room they had made under the sharp angles of the roof held in all the heat of the day and was thick with smells. Traffic fumes, honeysuckle from the garden below, dusty carpet, books, her perfume and face cream, the faint body staleness of their sheets. The prints and photographs and drawings on the walls, her own work, some of it, had sunk into the shadows, obliterated, and only the pattern of their framed shapes showed against the white paint. Through the open skylights, you could hear the blackbird now. Sweetness. Yes. There was some confusion of noises at the other end of the line, as if the call was coming from a public place like a station where it was difficult to speak. Intently, someone was asking for her. Can you hear me? Is it you, Lyd? Christine felt herself smiling pleasantly, sociable even though she couldn't be seen, sitting on the low bed with her knees pressed together. She thought that Lydia must have been drinking, which wasn't unheard of. Her voice was heavy, slurring, as if something in it had come loose. What are you up to? I'm at the hospital, Lydia shouted. Something's happened. What's happened? It's Zachary. He was taken ill at work. The room quaked 
and its stillness adjusted, a few dust motes came spiralling down from the ceiling. Unheard of for anything to harm Zachary. He was a rock. He was never ill. No, nothing so numb as a rock, a striding, cheerful giant with torrents of energy. Christine said she would call a cab at once, be with Lydia in half an hour at the most. Which hospital? Which ward should I come to? What's the matter with him? It's his heart. He's had a heart attack? They don't know really, Lydia said, but they think it's his heart. One minute, apparently, he was in the office at the art gallery, perfectly fine, talking to Jane Ogden about a new show. The next minute, he keeled over, hit the desk, everything went flying. Maybe he hit his head when he hit the desk. And what's happening now? Are they going to operate? Why aren't you listening, Christine? I told you, he's dead. And then she goes down to tell her husband. Wonderful. God, you're good. <laughs> it's really irritating. Um, I mean, I, I love... Well, well, we'll come to the business of talking and teaching creative writing, but you are so good at economy. Because in those two pages, two and a half pages, we get all the detritus of the marriage, the touches of, of you know, the... the the, the smell of the sheets, the bits and pieces, the hint of resentment about the patronising husband who yeah. shows off about the music. It's all, in a way, all the seeds of the narrative that follow are in those... those I mean, of course, I'm not, I am not brilliantly planning that. It's just sort of ha happening in my mind as I imagine the scene. And I suppose... I, I, I don't know what you do, Patrick, but I literally begin at the beginning, and I write my novels through to the you're end. You're a splurger. Or do you know It you're doesn't going? feel yeah. like splurging, because I'm quite slow and controlling. Mm. But I, when I am writing, the, uh, I, I very rarely change my openings. Lots of the rest gets changed yeah. and fiddled with and reworked later. But that opening, I, don't, I know it's going to happen. And in those first two pages, though, you, you've established your... Because this novel really is a quartet. It's, a, it's a very yeah. Mozartian. You have a bass, a tenor, a soprano, and an alto. Yeah. Oh, and, so what a brilliant and, idea. And, and, and they do well. Yeah, it would work very <laughs> yes. well. And, and, you, and your bass dies on the first page. Yes. But um, had you, had you, you planned that, presumably? You I hadn't thought much. of any image quite as good as a quartet, but I had planned it. I'd absolutely planned it. I mean, I wanted to write a novel about long marriage. Then I thought, ooh, two people eyeball to eyeball for the whole of a novel is going to be quite full-on, uh, sort of like one of those Radio 4 plays that used to be on in the afternoons. <laughs> yes. They don't have them anymore. And I thought, how much more fun to have two couples and follow two long marriages. Not only does it give me, a, as you say, a lovely quartet, a lovely range of people, but of course I can mix my couples up mm. wickedly, which suddenly instead of, um, you know... The psychiatrist chair it's sounding like a novel because it's not just a and b and c and d maybe there's a and c and b absolutely because it's know. not just mozart it's also shakespeare and these these couples have actually tried each other on for size yeah. at least yeah. in their heads yeah and i am thinking a little bit in the back you know i'm thinking midsummer night's dreamy mix-ups that the lovely thing where you have two couples and oh dear suddenly it's, it's not neatly segregated. That's just fun to have, isn't it? But it is, I mean, I don't think it's giving too much away to say that it's vintage Hadley in, in its examination of female friendship. And Lydia mm. and Christine, yeah. they've been friends a very long time. Yep. They've been friends longer than either of the marriages. Yeah, that's true. And they are, 
They're, they're the kind, I mean, in fact, funnily enough, the men too, both pairs, um, they found each other in that desperate moment of young teenagehood when you think you're alone in the world and you're the only one at school who thinks school is a monstrous place. And then at some awful occasion, I think with Lydia and Christine, it's a founder's commemoration day, you raise your eyes from all the other girls who are kind of believing in it Mm. and you find two sceptical eyes looking back at you. kindred spirit. Kindred spirit, yes. But it's a dangerous friendship. It's an unstable Mm. friendship from the start, isn't it? Because their backgrounds are so dissimilar. I don't know whether that's in... Maybe you hadn't planned it, but that's how it reads. Yeah, yeah, it is. Perhaps it's a dangerous... That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Lydia is one of those hungry people, hungry emotionally, and she wants what other people have. Had Zachary not dropped dead on page four, I think the two couples would have continued tidily. Again, Mm. we are giving things away, but it's sort of, in a way, I think you can tell what's going to happen from from early on in the novel, to some extent. To some extent. To some extent. Um, The thing is, the, the two marriages are stable, and they're settled, and that's going to be all right. But what you do in a novel, because, of course, you don't really want things to be all right in a novel, that's, that's not the nature of, of, the, of the form, you drop a rock on it. And, and the rock, so it removes Paul's lovely Zachary, who's the nicest, probably, of the four of them, and also the, the one who brings them all together, who makes it all yes. work. Yes, I mean, it's no accident that he's the curator of a gallery. He's very good at arrangements. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Without Absolutely. being cold, whereas yeah. Alex is, is a, a much cooler figure yeah. and an intellectual. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think it's, it's very naughty. It's like, well, the great Anne Enright has described you as being an extremely subversive novelist. And I think she's right, because on the face of it, because your style is so correct, um, it lulls the reader into thinking that they're in for a safe, a safe journey, but your story is anything but correct, and you do subvert. And one of the things I love that you do here is that Alex, when we see him as a young man, seems like the romantic prize. He, yeah. is, he is like this yeah. very kind of poetic, romantic, yeah. tortured figure. Yes. And then so wickedly, even on the very first page, we see what happens to that romantic prize when you're married to him for long enough <laughs> yes, yes. that she becomes a burden. <laughs> yeah. And, you know. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, but that, again, isn't that just so fascinating in life? What does become of that tortured, good-looking 20-year-old, 25-year-old man, 30-year-old man, who's so full of promise that all his friends think he's the one, he's going to be great, he's going to do something. And then gradually the decades, there's always one slim book of poetry, as there is with Uh, Alex. And then... Nothing happens. And the poor man, he feels it too. He feels this pressure to be great, to be something. And actually, that pressure's disabling. I hope I'm not unsympathetic to Alec. Well, I, no, I don't no, think I think I you're, you're entirely sympathetic, yeah, yeah. But, but the sympathy is, is inevitably more with, with Christine. Yeah, because, because, because she's married. Yes, and she's yeah. the head wherein the most yeah. it felt yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although still, I, I still stand by what I was sort of just saying, which is that had there not been a catastrophe... These are not 
dysfunctional marriages. No. They and are both working. They and are... also the, the friendships, in a funny sort of way, you show how the, there's a symbiosis, mm. and it's precisely the length of the two friendships running in tandem mm. in those marriages that keeps the marriages yeah, stable too. that's right. That's absolutely you right. You could possibly have removed any one of the four, and the other marriage would have... Absolutely right. It is like a beautiful structure, either in physics or maybe just in carpentry or engineering, and it's all working. And it, it really, they are really all right. And I really wanted, but I didn't want the novel to be too sad. It was one of the things I was afraid of it's when not, I was writing it. It's not a sad novel. It's a very funny novel, but it's funny it's ouch. In that it, yeah, it's, well, I think perfect. it's that humour you often have in your novels where it's the humour you love because you recognise the situation. Yeah. Not because it's laugh out loud funny yeah. so much as... You. Yeah, well, that's lovely to hear. We've all done that thing of yeah. sitting on a bed to take a phone call and suddenly being distracted by, I think, oh, God, these sheets need changing, yes, or whatever. Yes, yes, um, and yes. Then, and then suddenly the news then that the comes. Hits. Yes. Mm. Um, so, yes, I, I, I was... I, that, each novel one writes, one has a particular fear for, I think. You, you sort of see ahead of you. Oh, that's going to be difficult to carry off. That's going to be difficult to do. I'm sure you must. Can, we, must can we talk a little about the, the social world of your fiction? Mm -hmm. Because it seems to be wonderfully controlled. It's almost as if you've decided early on <clears throat> in your writing career that you weren't going to write about state of the nation or politics or whatever. You're, it's a dreaded word among editors mm. when they say, oh, this, the, her next novel's a quiet one. Yeah. Well, when I it hear is. somebody describing yeah. a novel as quiet, I immediately think, oh, great, that's for me. Because for me, the quiet novels mm. are the ones that really go under into the stuff of life, which is, you know, sheets needing changing and yeah. cat litter, yeah. but also the things that matter yeah. most to us, our marriages, our children. Yeah, it, I mean, I would love to tell you that this was a brilliant insight of mine at the very beginning of my writing career, but I have to say... It wasn't, and I spent a good 10 or 15 years trying to write... The State of the Nation. The State of the Nation oh, novels. Oh, interesting. That there's some mouldering on landfills somewhere. <laughs> it's a novel about the 1984 miners' strike. God for, I mean, God forbid. Well, I was hopeless it's, it's at writing It's not that your novels are apolitical or anything, or, 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 or particularly timeless, although I think they are quite timeless. Um, it's more than a bit like Iris Murdoch, I think. You... you home in on the dynamics of relationships to this forensic degree. Um, I mean, I think what writers like, who write novels as, like we do, what, what we hope and what we believe about the novels we love by other people that are quiet is that in their capture of ordinariness and everydayness, and I suppose middle-classness often, mm -hmm. not, not invariably, um, that contained in there, without us underlining it or making it a big polemic, are all the politics of that class and that moment in history and the economics of that class. Who, who, I always feel in any novel I write, we should know how everybody earns their living or whether yeah. they don't earn their living, whether they have money somehow. Um, we, we should know the sociology. And what, what happens over time, I mean, when... George Eliot published, published a novel in the 1870s. It was just... This isn't a very good example because she often wrote historical novels, but say Daniel Deronda, so that's a contemporary yeah. novel, and when it's published, it just feels like this is our now, utterly familiar. But, of course, as time moves on, and we're reading it in 1970, she, we now see, is holding 
all the, the political underpinnings of that moment in mm. history and in culture and in life and in how people made their lives together. And we see the economics of it and the class structure of it and the inequity of it. It's all there, but yes. not written large in capital letters, but just held for us. Well, that, it's always very cruel throwing quotations back at authors, but this is a rather good one of yours. You, you said in an interview that you wrote about um, this little Britain, this class of conscientious, flawed, indulgent, but self-searching people of your generation. So, in a way, your novels are Chekhovian because you're writing about a class of people who arguably are doomed. I mean, people who still read. Yeah. Um, you know, on, on yeah. Bo in books as opposed to yeah. on screens. Yeah. But people also, I think that uh, we belong to a generation of, 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 of writers who are, if I'm writing about our group, mm. Um, mm. we're writing about people who are shrinking. I want a shrinking island. Mm. Do, do you feel that? It's lovely to come to literary festivals and feel that it's oh, a bigger there's island. quite a few of us left. <laughs> but but yes. absolutely, absolutely, one, one can't but be aware of, of the digital world and mm. the loss of concentration. But, oh, I, no, I don't want to go down that old fogey route. I'm going to sound like an old fogey. No, you're not. You're not. Somehow, I think it's, it's, you're actually being um, forensic again about it. Mm. This is the state, the state mm. of, of the... Because in this book particularly, you're writing about people who... Um, are cushioned. They're lucky people. They're yeah, not they're lucky rich. people. Well, one couple are rich. Yeah, the other couple are So aren't. Lydia and Zachary yes. and the other couple, you know, the, the, the clever, inverted commas, clever couple, yeah. are not rich. Yeah. No. But they are, they ha they, both couples have the luxury... Of, of doing more or less what they, yeah. what they love. Yes, the fact that Christine is a painter yeah. and has had the leisure yeah. to become a painter because yeah. yeah. you know, she's successful by the time we first meet yeah. her, yeah. but that doesn't happen. And not successful enough. making tons of money, just, no. just getting no. little no, shows. But she, and, is, yeah. she is... She's doing what she loves she's best. She's rewarded, How lucky. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So to that extent, you are writing about people who are, who are not... Mm. Um, yeah. not touched by, by, by you know, harsh, harsh realities, except, of course, when it comes to being parents. Hmm. And time and again in your novels, it's, it's the children who destabilise often by, by being unpredictable, by straying outside hmm. the bubble. Um, can we talk a bit about that? Because you... I mean, I, the most the, the novel I view as I go back to time and again is Clever Girl which I'm sure wasn't autobiographical. No, it, if only I was <laughs> half as brave and bold and audacious. I, I, I gave Stella my character in mm. Clever Girl. She's born in Bristol, like me, like in 1956, like me, a long time ago. And I, um, but I then set her on this trajectory of a sort of female adventurer, in a way. And I, I really didn't get pregnant at 16 and no, no, not that. go to university or anything like that. But, but uh, yeah. But, but at her core, is Stella like you? Because Stella is, Stella is a girl who escapes through, re I mean, reading and books yep. are her, yep. her stepping stones. Her that, was a, that was a great bit of comedy that I enjoyed. There's a, there's a moment when her life is at a low ebb and she really is more or less a, a sort of, uh, you know, uh, looking after little children. She's a single yeah. parent. She's kind she's of a slave. She's, yes. And she saves herself through reading Victorian novels. Not great, not George Eliot, but the, the ones nobody reads anymore. Yeah. The Cloister and the Hearth and Charlotte Young and... Um, Lady Audley's Secret. Lady <laughs> Audley's Secret and East Lynne. Yeah. And I suppose, actually, that probably is me. I do remember not saving myself, but just falling into the deep 
lake of those books and adoring it and reading them without irony, uncritically. And I, I can't think of a better formation, morally and emotionally, than that. It's a very good start for any novelist. <laughs> it really is. Now, can we talk about creative writing? Because you, mm. you're, you're a very interesting case in that I, I won't say you started late, because there are novelists who started... Much later, Much later even. Than you. Absolutely, oh, but right. it was late. It was relative. Well, well, mm. you done some. Li- you done done some living. Yep, I had. I had. Access had my the home was published. What when you were in your forties? Forty. It was published when I was forty-six. Yeah, so twenty years later. Yeah. Than my or more than my first yeah. novel. Yeah. But yeah. I when I read your books, I think, oh God, she she knows stuff. I mean, when I look at my early novels, they're very very underwritten because I was much too young. Mm. You spent a lot of your life teaching creative writing, and brilliantly, I've heard from ex-students of yours what an amazing teacher you were, because, of course, you've stopped now. I, I've just stopped. I've just, just retired, stopped. yes. 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 The, yes. You still have yes. that shine of the newly... The yes, newly, the newly, st- newly stopped. retired, yes. yes. <laughs> um, but did you ever worry that you were teaching students to write who, who had not yet lived enough? Yes, occasionally. The, the 23-year-olds who Already came enough. straight through... From an undergraduate course in creative writing, which I'm now, as I'm now retired, I'm at totally at liberty to say out loud, <laughs> I never approved of. I never thought of anyone should do an undergraduate course in creative writing. Uh, maybe a couple of classes alongside English or history, but because because that the thing you're saying, Patrick, that one needs to live some. In fact, you need to live a lot before you start to write. Well, one of the ways you need to live is by learning about history, above all, about that this is not the only now, that there was another now yesterday and another one before that, and they all feel quite different, and then they fall away and they fall into oblivion. All of that that you learn in history. And, and to learn about books and to learn yes. about the great traditions and of fiction And those three Dr. Victorian novels take time to read. They really <laughs> do. So don't waste your time writing stories about how you're boyfriend doesn't love you anymore yeah. or how lonely you feel because everybody feels that at 18 yes. and 19. Lose yourself or, or write Collins them but just and... put them in a drawer. You don't need a class. You don't need a class. Read Wilkie Collins exactly. No, it's, it's, it's very but I'm a great that I am not saying that I don't believe in creative writing courses. Mm. I think the MA course which you know traditionally comes at the end of that time but really and truly it should be for mature people and three quarters of the people on them are older yeah yeah uh, it, it's well it it worked for me i mean i did one that i had been writing these awful novels about the minor strike and the state of the world and failing and i was making myself very miserable when you say you failed were you failing yourself or were you submitting them and both. How, how far had they both right. so first of all that awful thing where you are pushing it forward you are snatching the time while the kids are at school and you're sitting at your desk and you are thinking, I hope this is quite clever. I, I'm doing something clever here. It's good this time. But something inside, I now I'm feel sure, also had huge doubt, felt something inauthentic. But then I had never written anything that was right. true, whatever that means. Yeah. So I, I didn't know. So, so partly my own doubt, but then I would finish them. I at least finished I I genuinely have forgotten. And I knew nothing about publishing. Nothing. So I would send them off, not to an agent, really. I think I may have done that once. 
to a publisher. And then I would get a form rejection letter which said, we did not like your characters or something. And I would think, they're right. And, I, and, and they were right. That's the yes. other complicating <laughs> thing. And I would be finished with it and I would think, I will never do that again. I have to find a different life. This is awful. And then after a few months, I would think, ah, oh, but what if I wrote that one, that next one? And I would say that one of the criteria for eventually being published, when I look at students, would be an insane perseverance mm. against every kind of reason. So that, that certainly was what got me... Car- I just I couldn't not do it. So... Um, I, uh, sorry, Patrick, yeah, no, I'm, I, this is a long, long way of saying, and then I did a creative writing course, <laughs> mainly to, to, to test it. I thought, right. I can't go on doing this. And I don't believe in creative writing courses. What are they? Tolstoy didn't do one, or D.H. Lawrence. But I thought, I need to try this in the world, because mm. otherwise, what on earth am I going to do with myself? And, and it's that commitment thing as well. I think if and you that, sign up for true. a course, that's true. you are saying, yes. I'm, I'm taking this seriously. Yes. It's kind of like coming out in the world and being, you know, not embarrassed. I used yeah. to write quite furtively, really. Or in secret? Almost. Not quite secret, but embarrassed. Didn't make a song and dance yeah. about it. Yeah. And what was the turning point then? Why, why did accidents in the home emerge? It, I think it was coming into the world, doing that course where nobody can teach you to write, nobody can give you talent or mm. the, right, the right way to open the door into what you can do, but working with other people and writing sentences and thinking, on Thursday, those five people are going to read these sentences. It changes everything. It sounds so banal, but suddenly you're thinking, oh, they're boring. That'll bore them. No, I'm going to be funnier than that. I'm going to write a smarter sentence. It lifts your game. And you think, oh, she wrote something good last week. I've got to do better than that. And... I see that with students in classes. There's this thing where everybody lifts everybody else. Maybe not everybody lifts everybody else, because there's sometimes some that are stubbornly unable to get better. Presumably, as the tutor on the course, you're part of the selection committee for who is on that course. So, in a way, it's like casting a repertory company. You make sure you've got... Mm. the best you can get. You, of course, so absolutely. Help absolutely. each other up. Yeah, yeah. And am I right in thinking you sort of never stopped teaching? I mean, from that, from that course, did you, did mm. you go almost in? Yeah, because, because actually I still wasn't really right. I didn't, the novel I wrote on the course was a hybrid. There were things in it that oh. felt different to me than anything I'd written before. They felt as if they were really me. My thoughts in those sentences, what I had to say, small as it was, there they were. But, but it was a mess altogether, right. so that didn't get published. And, in fact, I did a PhD of an English kind, and I wrote on Henry James. I think that, too, having my... being authoritative, ma- mastery. You know, you have mm. to, to write, you have to take control, Well, take Jane, James, even more than George Eliot, when you study James, it, it makes you think, oh, OK, this is a serious art form. Yes. This is not light yeah. entertainment. Yeah, it does. Because he took yeah. himself and took yeah. it, his self-criticism yeah. so yeah. seriously yeah. that it's, yeah. it, becomes, yeah. it either daunts you into stopping, as yeah. it were, or... Yeah. yeah, exactly. So there was a sort of... A, an, an incredible couple of years that now I am a very indolent person, actually. I cannot believe I did this. I got a full-time job teaching English and a bit of creative writing. So this was at Bath Spa? At Bath Spa, 
I finished the PhD and had it published as a book on Henry James. I was looking after three children and my stepson at home. Actually, my husband broke his leg as well. Isn't that typical <laughs> of a man? Measure. Typical of a man. Attention seeking, yeah. probably. <laughs> and I wrote the first. I wrote accidents in the home. How did I do that? I don't know. I have no idea. But I did. Well, maybe it's on the principle of ask a busy person when you want something done. Yeah, yeah, you, you yeah. I've never, I've never ever been able to do that kind of amazing thing. I was just so excited, I think. But thereafter, as you continue teaching mm. and you were writing alongside it, how mm. did the two interact? It fascinates me. Would you write during the, the whatever vacations you were allowed from teaching? No, I, um, it's, the first four years I was full-time at Bath Spa, mm. but after that I reduced it and I okay. would... So I've forgotten the... But I would be doing... By the end, I was doing half the year only, and that, that's not a full year, you know, half the academic year, and I would only be doing two days a week. It was eminently doable. It was lovely, really. So it just meant on the days when I was at home, I was writing my books, mostly, and on the days when I was teaching, I was teaching. Huh. And it was like you, you were saying on, as we walked over, how we writers, it's a very solitary business, and one does want company, and, and maybe... We quite like to perform as well. So it was like a public part of my working week instead of the, the serious primary thing that was going on so privately. And we talked at the beginning about the, the, the fascination of the long marriage. You have been married a long time. And how <laughs> does, can I ask, is it cheeky to ask how your husband feels about your dissections of marriages? Do you have a treaty that he will never be written about? Or... Um, <laughs> What I suspect... I, I don't think I have written about him, but I use little things from what he... Right. That, he is nothing like Alex, but he does do that annoying thing of putting music on and then not saying what it is, and I won't <laughs> ask him. So he... And I've got a feeling that Eric sees himself in all my books and all my characters, and I just let him think that. I don't... He's... he's we don't talk about my books in any detail ever. That's funny, isn't it? That's really interesting. But we don't. But maybe that's necessary. Actually. I think it, it, every couple is different. Yeah. Um, now my husband says he never... He, he, he does read them, but we've never, we never discuss them, unless I get something wrong, and then he'll and then point he'll out I've right. something wrong. But, <laughs> but I always sense he feels his role is to keep me on the ground, keep me uh, grounded. That's just exactly yeah. the same. Yeah. So you and I have done... Have done that thing, but one does hear of these couples who literally... It's terrifying, they read, in read, there, read each, each other's... other's no, no, sounds no, like a nightmare no, to me, but, no. you know, <laughs> on good. And can we talk about, because you've skirted... We, I started trying to make you talk about it, and you've skirted away parenthood mm. and mm. children in mm. your books, because that's very interesting. I mean, your novel, The Past, yeah. which is one of my favourites, I, I love books, I think we all love books about families with secrets... Yeah. Um, yeah. But the siblings, that's one of your best ones about yeah, I, it's just sibling a, damage. How many siblings do you have in real life? Just one. Just the one. Lovely brother. Right. Lovely younger brother. Who You've made me think. He's one of the only people who, and I think only comically, protests that he, every, all my, many stories in some of the books, there will be an older bookish sister and a younger brother who he says is almost an animal. Almost as feral, spe yeah. feral <laughs> out playing sports, yes, yes. inarticulate, good looking, but, but sort of unable to speak. And he says, I'm always casting him as that, <laughs> which he 
We he, could be, he could do, could do worse. I, he could do worse is what I think. <laughs> Obviously, I was jealous of... He was a very lovely-looking little boy. He's a very nice-looking man. Uh, he's now an art historian, so I don't know what he's worrying about. Um, I've got so one brother, so I... But I just... Since I was a very small girl, I have been fascinated by families. And I, I did follow my grandparents around saying... So how many children were in your family? Who were your old? Which was the oldest? What were they like? And I knew about things like um, my, grand, my dad's father. There had been two little brothers, Percy and Arthur, who were born, stillborn, twins. My dad didn't even know that, that he'd had a, two uncles. You, you I ferreted knew it. it out. I ferreted it out. And I, it was utterly wonderful, sort of fascinating to me. So I've always drawn family trees both for our actual family and for made-up families and even when I was a little girl the, the stories I was writing then would always have elaborate family trees and I love books with family mm. trees mm. in and I've never had the problem you know people who read Russian novels think oh who are all these characters but you know I, exactly you I know exactly and, I, and I'm sometimes thinking so she's the half-sister that he met I, I actually really like that stuff. Yeah. I probably should be a genealogist or something <laughs> in another life. Or a psychotherapist, I was going to say, because you, you do seem to be fascinated by the dynamics of, mm. of character formation. So the, the, the conflict in childhood that will make one sister grow up to be a certain way. Yeah. Or... Yeah. yeah, it was great fun in the past, studying exactly that in a way because the past, that's the novel before late in the day, um, it begins with four middle-aged siblings in their 40s, I think the oldest is 50, gathering together in a house that, is their, that was their grandparents' home and that means a lot to all of them. And so you're watching them in the rather stiff, repressed older sister and then the scatty, delightful younger one. And then I had the great fun in the middle of the book of bringing them all down to being children. And, of course, I didn't do the obvious, so I had Harriet, who's slightly stiff and withheld and a little bit desiccated in, in her, as she's 50, and I had her as actually a slightly prickly, naughty little girl, not, not the obedient little girl you might have imagined. Yeah, yeah. But, I am, but I am, of course, you know, I'm, I'm dreaming up a, a sort of dynamics of how did those little ones become those older ones, but never... I hope, closing down on it, because I don't think the most brilliant psychotherapist in the world can ever just, you know, draw a straight line. Yeah, it's A equals... A caused B, yeah. which caused C, which caused D. It's all opaque, and it's sort of what we imagine it to be as well as what it was and what we make of what yes. we were given and so on and so forth. And, of course, what you delineate so well in the past is, is the way the siblings have completely different... Yeah. versions of the past. Literally, I, I like doing that. I literally have one of... When we're inside Alice's head, she thinks that her mother's funeral was in the country church. At her mother's funeral, I mean, probably the most important thing that ever happened to her, the most awful thing. Mm. But we learn then from the brother that it wasn't, it was in London. She's, she's just... I mean, I know that can happen. Something so awful that you completely sort of you. obliterate its actuality and you rewrite it. And one of the ways you rewrite it 
I mean, this is a basis of psychotherapy, of course, is that you, you are telling your own story yeah. and yeah. you rewrite your version, yeah. you re-edit your version, and then it becomes your truth. Completely. Um, yeah. And the job of the novelist yeah. and the psychotherapist yeah. is to un unpick that yeah. for us. But, but to equally validate everybody's mm. own story because that's the story you've made up. I'm, I'm quite a doubter about memory. I've got, I've, my mother is really annoyingly adamant about it. She has a very good memory, but she will not brook any alternative reading of that scene that she remembers. So she has a sort of legalistic she, mind she, she, say, yes. no, that's not true. That's not true. Case. That's not what happened. Mm. No, she didn't. And I, I don't trust memory very much at all. I feel we are all the time, all of us novelists, recomposing what happened, rewriting the scenes. But isn't that the beauty of fiction? The, yeah. The, the, the truth is a, maybe a, there may be an accurate truth, but all your characters have their versions. They of all it. have their versions, and of the it, novelist yeah. and the reader, therefore, can play God and see the whole thing. But, absolutely, um, absolutely. Let's go back to late in the day, your latest novel, because Christine is a very compelling and intriguing character, the painter. Because mm. you feel at first that oh, she's in this marriage, and then this marriage goes horribly wrong mm -hmm. for various reasons. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, but what's rather lovely is the way, and actually romantic in a very sort of solipsistic, but beautifully solipsistic way, the, 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 what could have been a tragedy and gone horribly wrong for her actually is the making of her, in a yeah. way. Because I think the love of her life is herself and her painting. Yeah. And I wondered how much, I'm not saying she's you, of course she's not you, but as a novelist, did you feel as a little part of you was thinking actually within every married artist or writer, there's a little part of them that mm. needs to go back into their room and shut the door. I do, actually. I do. Conf I own up to that. She isn't me, but when I was... The, the very next bit after what I read, she's on her way downstairs to give Alex the news of what's happened. And she pauses outside the back room in their flat that is her studio. And... She, it, she's, there's a paragraph where she said this is the most important place in her life. Mm. She comes to it every day. It's the centre of things for her. It's almost religious. And then something, somehow because of what she's just learned about Zachary, the whole of the centre of her life, this beautiful spiritual holding place, seems like a sick joke. And she locks the door to that room in, in a sort of disgust at the vanity of her art. And actually that key stays first yeah. in her pocket, then she puts it in her bag, and then she puts it in a pot on a shelf. And the room stays locked for the whole novel because she cannot get back. But that key is the Chekhovian gun. It is. You know it's going yes. to get you. You, you, you do know, know it's going I, to... I noticed it right away. But of okay. course you did. She's going to yes. unlock that later. Of course, of um, course. It's nearly time to throw you to the audience questions. But before we do, can we talk about the Wyndham Campbell Award? Because mm -hmm. a lot of people here, hands up here, who has heard of the Wyndham Campbell Awards? One two, hand up the back. Two, maybe two. Let me, let me inform you. This is for a novelist well, any writer, but especially novice, it's second only to the Nobel Prize in terms of its... It's a, it's, it's a it, slightly ridiculous it's a amount of money. Yeah, well, it's a huge prize financially. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a life-changing prize, but what I particularly love about it mm. is it's not for a single book, is it? No, it's, it's not. It's for your it's, body. It is the most lovely prize. I had never heard of it before they contacted me and said I'd won it. It's... It was an American couple, two men who, one of whom was a writer, one of whom was an actor, both 
inherited huge fortunes through pharmaceuticals or something um, and really, you know, had no one to leave it to and they beautifully left it to this foundation who award... It is actually, it's, I think, three fiction writers, three dramatists and three non-fiction, maybe. And I think now they have poets as well. I think you're right. They've let poets in Yeah, they have, they have. (laughs) And they they are chosen... There is no shortlist. There's no terrible kind of, you're on the shortlist, will you win, won't Mm. you win, the bookie's betting on you, which... The, I think the Wyndham Campbell slightly struggle with because it stops them getting the same publicity. Well, they've just hired a big publicity firm, haven't they? Yes, they're to desperate to get mm. it known better, and so it's good that you all now know about but, it because it's such a generous price. But from your point of view, yeah. you get the phone call, presumably. That's Literally, it. I got an email, and it was, it was my two days of teaching at Bath, and I always stayed the night in little lovely little... A pub in Corsham, and I was checking my emails late at night, having prepared my student work for the next day, thinking, oh, Wyndham Campbell Prize, it'll be some prize I have to tell the students about where they'll win 25 quid for a good short story or something. I'll, I'll have a look at it. And then I looked at it, and I thought, he said, I, I, we, I'd like to talk to you tomorrow. And I thought, I couldn't have won something, could I? I, I think, was it my first prize? It was my first yes, prize. Yeah. It was. Yeah. And then I looked it up and when I saw the quantities I just (laughs) counted the noughts I was just I just thought I I couldn't possibly be and it was and then the next day I talked to this lovely man and he said I had one and I was actually I mean of course I was utterly delighted who wouldn't be but I also was slightly embarrassed I went back to Eric I didn't phone him up or anything and I went back I even said this is going to sound really strange. You're going to think I've gone mad, but I think I've won this prize of... Well, I'll tell you, as I've made such a big deal of it, it was in pounds. It was about £120,000. Yeah. A huge amount of money. One, yeah, just how lovely. How lovely. And, they, and, and the choosing process is marvellous because it isn't... It is done by other writers who submit nominations and then they get mm. sifted out and then a little panel of... Writers, I think it's, I'm not quite sure, but I think writers, not publishers, not, yeah. you know. It's not led it's, by the it's, industry. It's not industry led, it no. absolutely isn't. But, and but I wondered how, everything. obviously, the money is lovely, yeah. but also how did, it, how did it affect you having your whole body of work suddenly held up? Because clearly it will have done yeah. a great deal for you in America. Where, you know. Do you know, I actually think even in America, it isn't. They, they do have this problem with publicity. So it, it's, it's a good, really good thing. How can it not be to have it after your name? In terms of public profile, not, not enormous. In terms of me, how I felt, it was transfiguring. It was marvellous to feel that. It, it was. Because when, when, you, when you don't win prizes, I'm incredibly sane about prizes. And I really know that it doesn't matter. But... After a certain while, you think, well, maybe, maybe I'm really not any good. You know, yeah, it, well, the you impos- can't, imposter syndrome you, is always imposter syndrome. There. So it was so lovely to feel that public sort of um, recognition, meeting one's the thing one loved doing more than anything else in the world. So. It was marvellous. Well, for those of us who've always loved your work, it was lovely because it was gave us a chance mm. to say, "You see, you see, she is that good." So, on which happy note, I think it's time for audience questions. Um, please put up your hand. You don't have to ask Tessa about later today. It could be about absolutely anything, within reason. 
Don't be shy just because we're in It was very un-English of me to name the amount of the prize, wasn't it? But they I'm could all go and did. look it they'll up. All, they'll all be They could all go and Google it anyway. All the writers so, here yes. certainly could. Yes, <laughs> yes. Anyway, we're, we're all meant There's to be, do, we're right meant to be doing that. We're meant to be talking about money, aren't yeah, we? Yeah. Instead of keeping yes, it all yes. secret and ashamed. Have you ever written short stories? Because what you read out just now, you know, you've got the picture in those few pages and it's such a, a skill writing a short story. Three, three collections? Three collections of short stories. Short stories first. Right. The first we, we, thing we I could do... We my short story question, we ran out of time. <laughs> that the first thing I could do was a short story before I had properly mastered what a novel's long engineering was so that in fact my first novel that Patrick talked about accidents in the home to tell you the truth it is really a sequence of short stories that happen to be about the same people and they happen in chronological order but in my head I thought I'll, I'll make this a piece at a time which isn't now how, how I write a novel like this quite so I love I love the short story form some of my favourite writers never write anything but short stories. Alice Munro or Mavis Gallant. I think she did write a sort of novel, but it's not as good. Her best so, works. Her best work is short yeah. stories, definitely. So, yes, absolutely. And, and, and you're, you're so right in the thing you, that a short story, because there's no room to waste, therefore every sentence has to count. And also you have to, have a, you have to come to the point. You can't sort of have a long slack. And, and do you worry that the current state of the novel is a bit slack? They're getting a bit obese. I, I don't know whether I... Do I worry? Maybe, maybe there are some... There, yeah, there There's are a, long, a loose, strange... Under, which is a strange... Well, under-edited. Yeah, under-edited yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah, maybe, yes, yeah. yes. I'm putting thoughts into your head, so yes. it's not fair. No, no, it's true, and, and I don't... don't it's, on this side of the Atlantic, we do not cherish the short story. It doesn't have the no. status that well, it has Well, and there's a very... One very simple reason for that. There aren't any... There are no magazines anymore. I mean, maybe, I think maybe People's Friend might still have short story, but they're quite formulaic. Yeah. Whereas when you used to open an issue of Good Housekeeping, yeah. you could find Doris Lessing in it or Alice Munro in it, actually, yes. or even You magazine 20 years yes. ago. Yes. I that, wrote one for them. Yeah. But also, they, we don't have prizes for short stories. We, we, have, we have too many prizes for single short stories yeah. and no prizes for a collection except for the wonderful yes. Edge Hill so Prize. The, the Costa should do one for a collection. Absolutely so. should. Absolutely should. End of rant. Next question. Why doesn't the Sunday Times, instead of having a huge, very prestigious prize for a short story, run a short story... Each it's interesting isn't it? if, in you, if you challenge publishers about this, because they, they cast up their eyes to the heavens when you yeah. say you want to do another collection of yeah. short stories. Yeah. Um, what they need is a, is a carrot in the shape of a big prize like the Costa or the Booker. That's true. That would yes. then make them... Yeah. Yeah. And the reason they're, they're reluctant to publish a collection of short stories is because it won't sell as well, and the reason it won't sell as well is because people aren't in the habit of reading them, and that's because they're not around enough. Yeah, yeah. So we it's need, a, it's a, it's a we need outlets. Yeah. And I, I have come across one reading group. We do, they do nothing but short yeah, stories wonderful. because they claim they haven't got the time, so they take okay. one collection. Well, that should work. Yeah, it should work. But I often hear readers 
in bookshops picking up and say, oh, a new Tessa Hadley. Oh, it's only short yep. stories, yep. which is so yep. odd. And I yep. always challenge them if I overhear it and say, no, keep it by your bed and read one a night yeah. on retiring. And it's, you know, it's a lovely, yes. lovely way of going to yes. bed. Another question at the very back. Um, you've talked about uh, uh, what you think about creative writing courses, and but when you are working with a student who's, mm. let's say, come out of a creative writing course or is a master student, a bit yeah. more mature, sure. what's the point that you get a student to? Because presumably you can't write the novel for them, or you. I mean, of course, that does rather depend on the course and how the course is structured and so on. So I can only really... I'll talk about our Bath Spa course, where we were very aware of the thing you're raising there, that it was all very well endlessly working with students on little 3,000-word extracts and get it, polishing them and making them, you know, better. And, but how do you help students with the long flow and structure of a novel? We had the final section of their year from Easter to the end of September, they worked one-to-one -one with a tutor. And I don't know how all the other tutors did it, but I would certainly say, OK, show me everything you've written so far and let me see it. And I'll have a I would have a first meeting with them. Actually, that would be in January, sort of, you know, while they were still part of the talk course as well. And I would be really brutal for that first meeting if I needed to be. And I would say, you started in the wrong place. This is, this is good here, but you've lost it. And I think you ought to, what, you know, narrate it in the third person or whatever. If they, the student didn't want to make a big change, then I would go with them. I just thought that was my job in a way, to be as brutal as a publisher. And, and, and then... You are working like an editor with them. You're meeting them, and they're sending you a new chunk, and then from time to time, I would look at the whole thing, perhaps not, you know, not reading in such detail, but just getting the flow of it, and you're saying, what are you going to make happen next? How are you going to end this? Where's this going? It's slack in the middle, you know. So that's, it's, it's a bit like being a very hands-on editor as the book is being written. And if you come across someone who is, let's say... It's a difficult word, but is, has genius tendencies. And they're about to make an amazing discovery about yeah. their own work. What do you do then? It's like they're on, a, on the edge of a waterfall. What do you do? Well, I have. I've, I've sort of got one student who was... Uh, it was a couple of years ago. I was... I said big things to her, actually. There were parts of... She's a British writer, I won't tell you who she is, but she had worked in advertising in New York for years and was writing a New York novel, which I wasn't, I wasn't sure that was such a good idea, but that's all right, that's worked. And it kind of, it had a gay character in it who I thought was a bit stereotypical in his dungarees, living in an arty... And, but, it had, but she had one character in it who was obviously drawing on her own experience much more, and that, the writing flew... So I was pushy with her, and she was a very good listener. And she then just flew with that. And nothing, nothing I then could... I, you know, you cannot write a novel for anybody else. Of course you can't. 
she's, she's done fantastically with it. And actually, as far as I know, she's gone strangely quiet. It is only half finished, but she has sold it very successfully. Actually, for more money than I've ever sold a novel for. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I'm delighted by that, because I've got my window come. Um, so... The, it's when the genius manifests and they are on a roll and the novel has taken on its life, there is no problem. Except sometimes for them, there, she, she, she was then thinking, and, then, and, now, and now what? And what do I do with this love affair I've started? And, and then, and what am I, how am I going to end it? And you, you can, it's fun to chat about those things. I think that's a very useful thing a tutor can do, just as an editor can. Just run you through... Get you out from where you're lost among the trees and make them see the wood. So, what could happen here? She could get pregnant. He could, um, he could die. Uh, they could move to another country. You know, open everything up. And they probably won't take any of those pieces of advice, but it's as if they can suddenly see their book from a long distance, freshly. So those, those sorts of interventions are very useful. Uh, so by the end of the Bath Bar course, it's unlikely you will have finished a book. That would be a huge ask, although occasionally students do. But um, you should be halfway through, and the DNA of the book should be established. You should have some sense of where it's going. If we don't have another question, I don't see it. could we end with another reading from you? I, I particularly love the baby... The baby, uh, yes, just in case... Just so people don't think the book is all Exactly, great. absolutely. So this is, this, is, um, this is when we go back after the opening section of the book where Zachary drops dead and uh, the whole of the story in the present day begins. We then, in part two, fall back into their, when they're all in their 20s. They're very young or when they're first involved or getting to know one another... So Lydia and Christine are close friends. Alex, actually, is married to his first wife, Juliet. And it's Lydia, not Christine, who has an absolute crush on him and offers to babysit for him and his wife, Juliet. They have a little boy, Sandy, in order, as you will see, to sort of get closer to his inner life. And I just thought they really were the babysitters from hell. Juliet tried to put Sandy to bed, but he soon reappeared, haunting his babysitters, lugubriously ghostly in washed-out pyjamas. He had huge, heavy eyes and skin so transparent it was almost blue. "'You don't mind, do you?' Juliet said blithely. "'He'll take himself off to bed when he feels tired.' Alex, doesn't want to go out, lifted the car keys off a hook, followed his wife out to the car without a word." Sandy cast himself against the door closed behind his parents in a mute paroxysm. Well, obviously he doesn't love her, Lydia pronounced, lighting up her first cigarette. Lydia, shush. Anyway, you can't possibly tell. We just don't know about how marriage works. Who doesn't love who? Sandy was suddenly attentive. Lydia laughed at him with her husky laugh. She had no idea how to behave with children. Just some people you don't know, friends of ours. X doesn't love Y. What do you know about love anyway? You're a little eavesdropper, aren't you? What's an eavesdropper? Sandy was drawn to Lydia as if he couldn't help himself. And to begin with, she exerted all her adult charm on him, flirting and teasing, 
asking him inappropriate questions in her deadpan voice. Can you read and write? Why can't you? What are those pictures on your pyjamas? Yachts? Do you own a yacht then? Who do you love best, your mummy or your daddy? My mummy, Sandy responded promptly. Lydia pretended to be his daddy, feeling sad, rubbing her fists in her eyes and moaning. Sandy pityingly drew close, almost with tears in his own eyes, and she grabbed him and poked his tummy, playing at biting him. It was all too much. Soon he was thoroughly worked up, running around screaming with excitement. And when he collapsed five minutes later in frantic sobs, Lydia grew tired of him and Christine had to take him to bed, calm him down, read him stories. Meanwhile... She could hear Lydia snooping around downstairs, opening drawers and cupboards. It's for my survival, Lydia explained when Sandy was finally asleep. I have to find out everything about Alex. Do you think they're sleeping together? Obviously, there's only one double bed, but do you think they're actually having sex in it? I don't think they are. I didn't feel any electricity between them. Christine didn't want to think about Alex, whom they hardly knew and were in awe of, having sex with anyone. She said she had no idea. Yet she couldn't help her own curiosity in relation to the material thickness of these lives. Juliet, too, become, became glamorous by association with Alex. The girls searched in the fridge, tried the alcoholic drinks, read the postcards propped on the windowsill among the plants, even read a few letters left lying around. They felt for married secrets in the arrangements of the rooms. It was clear... Two forces were at odds in the tiny house, pitted against each other. On the female side, there were the jars of lentils and pasta with gaily painted lids, the child's drawings stuck on the fridge, the Indian embroideries on velvet, plants everywhere. Juliet was good at growing things. Ranged against this female brightness and optimism were the books in their plain covers on the shelves in Alex's study in English and French and other languages they didn't recognise, piled punishingly high and thick with dust. The electric typewriter, the desk with its brimming ashtray, the broken, dirty Venetian blind hanging at a slant against the dark outside, the swivel chair on its chrome stem, all these were so deliberately ugly, modern, an austere exhibition of the life of the mind. Black and white photographs propped on the shelves or pinned on the walls were all photographs of men, other writers presumably, taken in rooms very like Alex's study, also piled untidily with books and papers. Christine felt protective on Lydia's behalf against what was forbidding in Alex. The whole weight of a world of knowledge they didn't share, a history and prestige in other languages which shut them out, showed them up as provincial and ignorant. Lydia was betting on the power of sex against all this monumental difference. Are you sure that Alex is right for you? Christine wondered carefully. I mean, even if he wasn't married and everything, I think he's quite cold. I admire him, but I don't think I like him. Lydia agreed, accepting her doom. He's completely the wrong person, but it's love. I don't have any choice.
think there could be no lovelier ending to a book festival than the joy of just being read to. Tessa, thank you so much. Thank you, Patrick. You can buy Tessa's book. I'm sure she will sign old paperbacks if you have them at the back of the church, and the bar is also open. But please join me in thanking Tessa Hadley. Thank you.